0: Welcome to The Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on all things about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be talking about a Boy Scout leader who confessed on Facebook to years of sexual abuse of his Scouts, Roger Stones never setting foot in prison for one day, and a 15-year-old girl in Michigan who's been in jail for months for not doing her homework. In segment two, as promised, we'll be talking about the topic of confessions and doing a deep dive into voluntariness and when confessions are involuntary. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, and follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at TLOBJ. Last but not least, look to www.tlobj.com for information about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week a former Boy Scout leader in Chillicothe, Ohio, posted a message on Facebook allegedly confessing to the sexual abuse of teenage boys in his care?
1: I cannot believe that. That is devastating and and kind of amazing that he made that post and, and didn't get counsel first and keep things private until you figure out the right strategy.
0: The news reports on this indicate that Mr. McKell was being investigated for these allegations that occurred 20, 25, maybe even 30 years ago. Um, But his desire to confess, the topic that we're going to be exploring today, may be a genuine play for atonement. His, uh, His execution of that desire was very dangerous. Now, his statement can be used against him in a court of law because it's what's called a spontaneous confession. He won't be able to argue that it was coerced or involuntary. There's no Miranda warnings triggered in this case. He has put his own life, that of his family, and that of his loved ones in danger. Now, the post was ultimately removed because of threats of violence against him and his family.
1: That sounds incredibly scary for his family. I I can't even believe that he would post that and not think about what the repercussions would be and that people could actually get hurt.
0: Absolutely. and. This really highlights the role of a criminal defense attorney and why we need systemic change as it relates to people who have paraphilias that run afoul of the criminal law. Had this individual gone to a treatment provider, a psychiatrist or psychologist, to seek the necessary and appropriate help for his paraphilia, he likely would have been turned in by that treatment provider to law enforcement. But going to a criminal defense attorney to make these statements, the criminal defense attorney can then help him get the treatment that he needs in a secure and confidential environment to make sure that he had never acted on his urges. That's of paramount importance and something that we really push here at the Law Office of Brian Jones. We want to make sure that people who have these illnesses, whether it's a sexual paraphilia, a mental health addiction or other mental illness.
1: You know, and it's amazing the kind of programs that you guys have. It's, it's really trying to cure the situation before it gets worse. And I think that that is so important because it, it really saves the lives of, of any future victims from living a a terrible life after being hurt by these individuals and make sure that, you know, they they are well going forward in life and that they're not going to hurt other people. And I heard that you guys really have a a good success rate with that.
0: We do, Erica. We have have a handful of clients that are presently in treatment that have either been accused of uh, illegal sexual conduct or Never were accused, but knew that they were in a risky place. And we've been able to work with some treatment providers to give them a path forward, a way to live their lives in a safe manner, using you know using guardrails to make sure that they never act on their illegal sexual urges. You know, it's it, the other thing interesting about this case is that Attorney General David Yost has used this individual um, as an opportunity to push his agenda and call for the elimination of the statute of limitations on sexual assault allegations. This is a call to increase wrongful convictions in the state of Ohio. And we're going to work hard bit with our legal litigation, as well as with state and local organizations to fight modification of that law.
1: I think that's fantastic. Every other addiction has programs that help them get better. And as long as you are helping work to give the same rights to these individuals with these addictions, I think that's, I think it's fantastic. And I think a lot less people will get hurt.
0: Thank you, Erica. I appreciate you saying that. We just want to make sure that we wish Mr. McHale the best of luck in his journey to recovery, rehabilitation and restitution. And we hope that his victims also make progress on their journey to recovery and processing the harm that his paraphilia caused them. Did you also see, Erica, that President Donald Trump granted clemency to his close friend and associate Roger Stone?
1: There's a lot of political outcry over this situation and it- It seems unbelievable. I can't wait to hear what your opinion is on this situation.
0: What this decision means is that Roger Stone won't spend a single minute in prison following his felony conviction uh, for obstructing justice and lying to the FBI during their investigations. He won't suffer any fines. He won't spend a day in jail. And he'll never have any probation or supervision. He will, however, remain a convicted felon. Uh, This move has drawn outrage from the federal bar, and it's a highly unorthodox and unusual move, um, especially with a disgraceful undercurrent of political favor. You know, you pay me and I'll help you out type situation.
1: I don't even know how this can be allowed. I, I feel like he's I feel like he's putting one more thing under the rug before he leaves office. And I don't know if he's gonna leave office, but this feels like one of those rush decisions that that they put in there at the 11th hour. I'm not sure if you agree.
0: Well, Erica, whether Mr. Trump will remain president or not is something that we'll have to find out in November, maybe even December. Um, But it absolutely feels like a quid pro quo considering Roger Stone refused to participate in the investigation of Donald Trump. What I want to note before we move on from this topic, Erica, is that clemency is a powerful tool that's reserved to the executive branch on both a state and a federal level that can truly change the life of a person with a prior conviction. Consider, uh, consider for example, the very deserving case of a man who Governor Mike DeWine pardoned, um, who as a young man had served time in prison for drug trafficking. He he served prison time back in the 90s. He served his entire sentence. He has since then lived a a law-abiding life and really moved past and become a very productive member of the community. But his Mm -hmm. convictions were preventing him from obtaining a license to become a mortgage loan originator you know his his chosen profession has nothing to do with his crime um and this is a really great example of how executive clemency or a pardon can really do some good in a person's life after they've demonstrated rehabilitation for what they've done
1: yeah i mean that that's a great example of of someone who deserves that action and I'm sure that if Mr. Trump had looked further, he could have found something a little more appropriate than than what he ended up doing, which, you know, as you said, it absolutely looks like a quid pro quo.
0: Erica, did you hear about the shocking abuse of judicial discretion in Michigan, where a juvenile court judge has left a 15-year-old girl in a juvenile detention center for two months now with the intent to keep her in there until September for not doing her homework after school was shut down as a result of the coronavirus pandemic.
1: That is unbelievable and, and such a terrible tragedy for her. I can't imagine what effect that is having on her mentally and, you know, possibly, uh, you know, her health because, now she's in one of these detention centers, and I'm sure that social distancing is difficult, just like we've talked about with the the jails and the prisons. And the other thing I have to say about that is, oh my gosh, this you know, schooling from home. I have a seven year old. We, you know, she she can't pay attention for very long. So you know, if I'm not sitting right with her, she'd absolutely fail first grade. And so you know, she has the help though, and this. This 15-year-old didn't, and so I I really feel for her.
0: That's absolutely the case. ProPublica reported that uh, this young lady's teacher was available and was trying to testify on her behalf at her probation violation hearing, but the hearing drug on so long that the teacher had to jump off. Had she had the opportunity to testify, she would have told the judge that this young lady was doing no worse than most of her classmates. But this story highlights two things that are really uh, important for people to realize right now, both white privilege and the systemic bias that infects our criminal injustice system. Because as you would have guessed, this is a black child and she has special needs and she lives in a predominantly white community. Um, Despite no violations, other than not doing her homework and missing some of her Zoom classes. She had no new charges. She had no arguments with her mother, which is one of the reasons that she was originally involved in the juvenile justice system. This judge on the record calls her a danger to society because she didn't do her homework and she didn't show up to Zoom class. Um, And I, I think this really highlights what people are protesting about in the streets right now. now we're gonna talk more about probation and parole violations during the COVID-19 pandemic in segment two of Sui Generis next week. But Erica, I wanna get your feedback as, as a parent on how you think the judge should have handled this situation.
1: Well, number one, I seriously think that if that's how we're going to judge people that need to go to detention centers, like if there are going to be kids, there's, there's going to be millions more in there because most of the kids did not get their homework done. And it's unbelievable that they didn't have the teacher there. They didn't make the right time so that the teacher could talk about the results for the whole class. Because if they were all doing poorly and, and I can absolutely see that happening, because you know, distance learning is new for everybody. And, and I'm sure that some kids might get used to it, but you know honestly, it's, it's very hard to concentrate and stare at a screen all day as adults. Never mind kids that are trying to learn new concepts and not getting the same amount of help that they were getting before. So I'm outraged.:
0: Does it feel like race was a factor to you as well? the only one ordered to appear in court, and she was the only one that was incarcerated for her violations.
1: Well, when you put it that way, Brian, it sounds like this definitely was a race issue. Thanks for clearing that up.
0: Erica, let's move on to our segment two featured topic this week, confessions. What is it that you know about confessions?
1: Well when you first say confessions, I think about Catholic church, but (laughs) I'm not Catholic. It's just what my friends all told me. I grew up in a a French Catholic town um, of Lewiston, Maine. But uh, confessions, when it comes to the police, I always think of, you know, someone being forced to confess for some reason. I don't know if that's just because of what I've seen in the movies, Um, but I know today we're going to be talking about another type as well, the difference between the voluntary and
0: the involuntary confession? So what the case law tells us is that both through the United States Supreme Court and Ohio jurisprudence, that the definition of a voluntary versus an involuntary conf- or involuntary confession is a statement is voluntary if it's the product of, of a free and unconstrained choice by its maker. Uh, that comes from Column B versus Connecticut from 1961 in the United States Supreme Court, which was adopted by State versus Wiles here in the uh, Ohio Supreme Court. Conversely, a confession is involuntary if it's the product of coercive police activity, and that came out of Colorado versus Connolly in 1986. I feel like there's a lot of wiggle room between those definitions because there's there's a huge difference between something that's free and unconstrained by choice of its maker versus something that's coerced out of you. There's, there's a lot of gray in between those. But What we find from reviewing the case law is that the Supreme Court and all the state courts have really moved further and further towards requiring that coercive police activity to deem a confession involuntary or a violation of the Miranda rule. A failure to advise of the right to remain silent, to have counsel, um, to refuse questioning—that uh, was that we discussed last week. Um, remember that when we discussed Miranda, the emotional aspect of modern-day law enforcement tactics uh, is is incredibly coercive, and what the case law says is that law enforcement can really use any emotional means necessary, up to. Uh, a very fine and everyday disappearing line to extract a confession or an admission uh, from a suspect. That is not to say that there are not folks who genuinely want to confess. We've already talked about that today in our early segment regarding the Facebook post. It's a tenet of criminal defense work that there are really two types of cases, the innocent cases and mitigation cases. And we as criminal defense attorneys embrace that fact. And the fact that there are individuals out there who commit crimes and need services like counseling, anger management, job training, substance abuse support um, in order to correct their decision-making to achieve rehabilitation, to provide restitution to their victims and ultimately provide a safer society for all of us. But what we don't want are people falsely confessing to crimes that they didn't commit. And that's why there's the exclusionary rule. That's why we have Miranda versus Arizona and the rule that it prescribes. Because what we find time and time again in reversals of uh, wrongful convictions is that a significant percentage of them contain a false confession.
1: Wow, that is so interesting. So when when they're trying to decide whether these confessions are voluntary or involuntary, what are some of the uh what are some of the things that they consider? Well,
0: we have to look to one of my favorite cases, or at least one of my favorite named cases, Schenkloth v. Bustamante, which lays out the totality of circumstances test that trial courts weigh in determining whether a confession is voluntary. Now it needs to be noted that the only way a trial court considers this issue is if the defense attorney properly briefs and moves the court to suppress or exclude the evidence. If you don't challenge it, it's weighed. But the Bustamante circumstances weigh the confessor's age, their mental ability, Their prior experience with the criminal justice system, the length, intensity, and frequency of the interrogation, the existence of physical deprivation or mistreatment, the existence of threats or inducements. So we're talking about, is the person young or old? Does the person um, have the mental ability to understand and process their rights and what the consequences of making an admission are? How many times have they been in this situation and been subjected to interrogation? We're talking about how long they were kept in the interrogation room. You know, was this interrogation a 15-minute discussion in the back of a cruiser? Or was this a four, eight, 12-hour session in an interrogation room at the station? Did they ask these questions over and over again? Did they do it multiple times over several days over the course of a week or more? Um, was there physical deprivation? Were they precluded from accessing water or the bathroom? Were they physically abused in some way? Or was there a promise by the officer for leniency or a promise of, of consequences, physical or societal, by the officer during the course of the interrogation?
1: Well, sounds like there are quite a few thing, factors to consider so going back to you know what we spoke about earlier confessing on facebook to sexually molesting boy scouts i mean that 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 was a a, an admission that he made on his own and i'm just wondering why do you need an attorney if you want to confess voluntarily
0: most importantly, you need an attorney in this situation to ensure that the proper charges are issued and that appropriate mitigation arguments are made in court. Now, if we assume for a moment that the statute of limitations to these offenses doesn't apply, and we assume further that nobody's going to come forward for improper reasons accusing him uh, falsely of molesting them. then the arguments about treatment, about his rehabilitation and his lack of any improper conduct for over 20 years become critical factors when deciding what the appropriate sentence for his conduct is.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And certainly, they're not always thinking about what's going to happen to the future to themselves or to their family. So it's good to have somebody on your side that has a knowledge of the of the law and can have a cool head when thinking about the strategy for the future. Because even if you want to confess, and it sounds like a really good idea, you want to make sure that your loved ones are going to be safe and that it doesn't actually put you in a position where you don't get treated fairly in the future when you're going through the court system.
0: That's absolutely right, Erica. And- you know, in Mr. McKell's situation, pressures were put on him to make that statement online. You know, he may end up standing by that confession and say that it was a truly voluntary, fair, voluntary act. But we need look no further than a case that's dominated our cultural conversation for years now that involves all of these circumstances in the tragic case of the interrogation and coerced confession of Brendan Dassey as chronicled in the Netflix document documentary, uh, Making a Murderer. You'll recall that Brendan was uh, a, a young person, no prior criminal experience or no experience being investigated or no experience with the criminal justice system. He was of low intellectual functioning. He was interrogated for hours on end. He was interrogated multiple times. Uh, these, these mental, uh, Anvils were applied to him to get him to make his confession. Um, But he made that confession. And he he said that he engaged in a murder. So we can see how this happens. One of Ohio's surprisingly progressive criminal laws, the Ohio Revised Code requires that any custodial interrogation be recorded. So the the, uh, circumstances of the interrogation Or any supposed or alleged confession is preserved for review by the court and the accused attorney. False confessions open up this whole can of worms that is something that we're going to have to address in a future episode of this show.
1: Well, it sounds like it's going to be a very interesting show for the future. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Erica, I want to thank you for joining me today. Now, for everybody out there, in order to become informed about how the government is taking away our rights, violating your civil rights, and how the criminal injustice system works hardships on families, produces false and improper convictions, check out our website, tlobj.com. Subscribe to this podcast on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow us on Facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at T-L-O-B-J. You can also find our information searching for the hashtags no walk, no talk, and no blow. We'll be back next week with a new sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system as well as a discussion about probation and parole violations in this age of the coronavirus pandemic. Erica, remember that my grandfather always said, don't do anything I wouldn't do when we parted ways. To that, to all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended. To police and prosecutors, I say, If you want to take away my client's rights, you're going to have to come through me to do it. Molum lave.